0: Good morning, church family. Please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. My name is Kristen Nee, and I have the honor of reading our scripture today from Genesis 1, 25 through 28. These words come to us recorded by human hands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and therefore they come today as the very word of God. So let's ready our hearts to hear together the word of our Lord from Genesis 1, 25 through 28. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we're
1: starting a two-part series today on sex and dating, Now, the the Christian dating world is kind of awkward. Uh, Now, you might be saying, well, I'm not dating. I'm happily married. Um, Good for you. Um, But we should be concerned about this. Um, If you have a friend that's dating, if you have a child that will date, um, and just the fact that so much of our congregation is single, looking to be married, this should concern all of us just for the sake of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. So I, I want to talk about this in kind of two parts. Um, we didn't always have dating. Um, and we're going to talk about this more next week. There, there was an age when we, in the, same, in the way that we do today, we didn't trust you know, hormone-filled young people to go out into the wild and find a partner for themselves. It was more of a family decision. It was, it was more controlled. The, the, the parents were more involved. Now, there's visages of this. Even still today, it's very customary that, you know, a man would ask a woman's father for her hand in marriage. But that's really just a formality. It's a visage of kind of a bygone era. Now, again, I'm not saying that we should go back uh, to any certain era of how people got together and got married. But I do think it's important that we think about how do we think about this biblically in the modern age? I think we've kind of moved into the modern age without giving this very much thought, thinking about the purpose of dating, how we understand it, how do we look at this in a God-honoring way. So again, we're we're gonna be looking at this over the next um, couple of weeks, and we're gonna look at dating in particular more next week. But I wanted to start a little bit with how we got here. If you were here last week, uh, Carl Truman uh, was here, very great and helpful weekend uh, for our church. Carl's written a couple of books recently that have been very, very helpful in terms of understanding our modern age. He he wrote the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and the book, Strange New World. And in the second book, Strange New World, if you've read it, he talks a lot about the Irish poet Oscar Wilde. He interacts with Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde lived in late 19th century uh, and, and one of Oscar Wilde's most interesting works, and you may have read this, you may remember this from high school, is The Picture of Dorian Gray. Now, if you don't remember this from summer reading back in the day, um, basically the, the story, I, I can't I have time to go through the whole story, but the story is, the premise of the story is that the main character, Dorian Gray, has this portrait painted of himself. And, and while he's the model of this portrait, he kind of starts to think, well, I... I I wish that I could you know, never age. I wish that my beauty that I have right now would remain forever. And so he kind of wishes the effects of life, the effects of aging, the consequences for his decisions on the portrait, right? If the consequences of my aging, my life, would just be manifested by the portrait and not by me, well, he gets his wish. That's the, that's the premise of the story, he gets his wish. And he goes out, kind of living totally for himself. And all of the effects of that don't come on him. It, it's cast onto, as it were, the portrait, even aging. He doesn't age. Now, it's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting book. It's a very interesting premise. And, and, and the point of this is I think that a lot of us kind of think this way. If I could just live out my heart's desires without the bad consequences, that would be happiness, right? Right? That would be freedom. Then I would, then I would really be happy. Then I would really be set free. Now, you'll have to read the book or join Jason Byer's Great Books Club to find out what happens. But what's interesting is that today, because of technology, we kind of live in an age where Dorian Gray's wish is sort of coming true, right? We don't want to age, right? Well, with things like Botox and other technologies, we can kind of get that wish, you know? Uh, We want to have sex without the possibility of having a baby or getting an STD. Again, with things like birth control, other technology, we can kind of remove some of the consequential effects of these things. Uh, Of course, we live in an age where, where people are wanting, women are wanting to identify as men, or men are wanting to identify as women. And again, because of technology, we live in an age where you can at least appear to be something that you are not. Now, I'm not saying that technology, I want to be careful here, I don't want, I'm not saying that technology is by itself bad or is intrinsically bad. We're, we're made to be creative people. But when you kind of take the power of technology and remove any sort of God-given purpose or God-given telos, it can become an interesting world. And we can kind of get the wish of Dorian Gray. We can, to some degree, live out our desires with, without at least the immediate consequences of those desires. All of this flows from something that Carl Truman talks a lot about in these books called expressive individualism. And, and really, this is kind of what I'm getting at here. The, the, the expressive individualism, we, we kind of live in an age which says the source of my happiness, the source of my identity, right, who I really am is the summation of the desires that I have, right? If I have a desire in my heart, then that must be right, and that must be, fulfilling that desire must be the pathway, must must be the source of my identity, purpose, and happiness. That's what Dorian Gray believed. That's what really the book is about, him living out those purposes and desires. And really, that's what the modern man has come to believe. Now you'll have to read the book again to see what happens for Dorian Gray, but I I think we kind of see what's happening to the modern man. And so I think this study is really important. Genesis one, the Bible actually presents the whole world in a very different way than this. Uh, The Bible actually presents the the world in a very different kind of setting than, than Dorian Gray. two two things that this very simple text that I'm sure many of you have read many times leads us to think about, and these are big things. Number one, what does it mean to be human? And then number two, what does it mean to have sex? Two pretty big topics. Let's get to work. So what does it mean to be human? If you're familiar with the creation narrative, God begins to speak. And from God's creative order, the world and the universe and everything begins to come into existence. And if you've read the creation narrative, day after day after day, more and more and more, I mean, the, the world is filled, beauty comes about. There's this glorious reflection of God's glory. And in, the, in the creation account, if you've read it, it crescendos. It's, it's like a song that crescendos. And that's where we pick up today. Verse 25 says, God made the beast of the earth. And this is what I wanted you to see. According to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. I started here in 25 for a reason. I wanted you to see something. All through this creation narrative, the the create the creatures that God makes, of course, reproduce. And and God, of course, sets limits on how they would reproduce. They would reproduce according to their kind. To use an old phrase from Alabama, dogs don't have cats, right? The creatures that God created would create creatures like them, according to their kind, according to them. You know, I have a dog that lives at my house. Uh, Her name is Mabel. She's a yellow Labrador retriever. Okay, a Labrador retriever. Now, we never taught Mabel how to fetch. I never got out in the backyard and taught her how to fetch. But if you come over to my house and throw a tennis ball in the backyard, she'll run and get it and bring it back to you because she was of, she is of retrievers. She is according to a kind of dog that has learned this skill throughout. Time And she knows how to do that. There's something intrinsic about her. There is something that is being passed down generation to generation according to kind. So while you're still thinking about this, the reason I started in 25 is while you're thinking about how creatures bring about other creatures according to their kind, we get to verse 26. And it says, Then God said, Let us... God is saying this, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God, and this is key, and God blessed them. Now now this is interesting. God made us to be like him, right? All the creatures reproduce according to their kind. And then God says, I'm going to make a creature, if you will, in my image, according to my kind, that is like me, that, that, that reflects me, that behaves like me. This is what we were meant to do. In the same way that Mabel goes and gets the, the tennis ball, what we were made to do What we were created to do was to reflect God's glory, to to be like him, to follow his way, to do as he does. And when we live this way, when, when we get this, we experience what the Bible calls shalom, peace and wholeness where everything is right. But when we reject God's way, right? When we go away from this, when we do what we were not made to do, that is when the world is full of brokenness and pain and sorrow. We were made in God's image to reflect God's character, our meaning, our purpose, identity. Hear this, it's not something that comes from within. It's something that comes from God, God has given us a telos. He has given us an end. This is the exact opposite of the modern man. This is the exact opposite of Dorian Gray. We weren't meant to find our identity within. We we were meant to look to God as a source of identity for us. And when we do, we experience shalom. We experience God's blessing. Verse 28, and God blessed them. The man and the woman, as they reflected God, they experience the blessing of God. Now the question then becomes, well, what does that mean, right? What does it mean to reflect God? What does it mean to be like God? That's a great question. And actually, we've been talking a lot about this recently, understanding the nature of God to understand our own purpose and identity. There's a clue in verse 26. It's a very amazing passage. God Okay, now this is third person singular. Then God, third person singular, there is one God, said, let us, and this is in the Hebrew, let us, now this is now first person plural, let us make man in our, again, first person plural, image after our Likeness. Let us make man in our image. This is a clue. It's a sign to what we've come to understand about the nature of God is that God exists in three persons. The first person, the second person, the third person of the Trinity who have existed together in perfect unity, in perfect love, in perfect harmony for all time. And the way that God has manifested this to us is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons of the Trinity. And and this is what's so important. What we see all throughout the scripture, the way God has revealed himself to us is that the Father glorifies the Son and honors the Son. So they exist in this relationship of honor and love. The Son glorifies the Father and honors the Father. They exist in this relationship of of giving and receiving honor and love and glory. The the Holy Spirit, we read in John 14, he glorifies the Son. The, 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 The relationship between the third person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity, again, is one of honor and glory. There is honor and glory in all of these relationships. That's how each member of the Trinity is approaching one another the father honors and glorifies the spirit the, the spirit honors and glorifies god that this whole relationship exists not in not in a way of taking not in a way of trying to get but in a way of giving and receiving honor and glory with one another gregory of Nazianzus, which is one of the old church fathers he, he referred to this and other church fathers too Refer to this as the periachorus, or C.S. Lewis translated this, the great dance. Some have referred to it as the circular dance. And and I love the way that Lewis and Owen Barfield and other writers talk about this. They talk about this is the true realm. This is the true realm. This is, you know, for, for modern people like us individualistic people like us living in a very individualistic go get what you can go take what you can you know go get as much out of other people as you possibly can this idea of of living toward one another fundamentally primarily with honor and love I mean it sounds good it sounds good because you're all made in the image of God but it feels very foreign it feels very far away. But I love the way that Lewis talks about this. It's, it's, this is the true realm. This is the true realm. This is the real, real. Owen Barfield, he, he talks about this as the tune of the silver trumpet, it, meaning this is the, the tune that we're all supposed to find, That the tune that we're all supposed to be dancing to, as it were, the great dance. And in a dance, I like that Relationship. In a dance, when, when two people are dancing, they're not fighting with one another, they're not exploiting one another, they're not trying to take from one another, right? There's this perfect giving and receiving that happens. You ever see two people dance? You know what I'm talking about? There's this perfect giving and receiving where it's one motion. And, and that's really the nature of God. That's how God exists, this this true realm, this great dance, this giving and receiving. It's not taking, it's not getting, it's giving, it's receiving. I knew I, wouldn't give, I said I wouldn't give away the book, but this is why Dorian Gray is so miserable. He goes out to get and get and get and get, but not give. And again, I know this is foreign to us. We, we live in a very much individualistic, get all you can kind of society, but you were made to be like God. You were made to exist in love. The posture of the Father is to love and honor the Son. The posture of the Son is to love and honor the Father. The posture of the Spirit is to love and honor the Son and the Father. Don't you see, this is what you were made to do. To be in fellowship with God. To receive his love, the love that he has shown you in creation, the love that he has shown us even more so in the gospel, and to respond to him, receive and to respond to him, to give him glory and love and honor. This is what the man and the woman we're called to do, to live in fellowship with God, to receive God's love and to, to honor him with love and with glory. And this is the way they were supposed to treat each other. It's why in chapter two, when the institution of marriage comes along, the, its we read in Genesis two, the man and the woman were naked, totally vulnerable, totally exposed. And guess what? They weren't trying to hedge one another. They weren't, they, weren't, they weren't scared to be vulnerable before one another. Why? Because they lived in a world of honor and glory. They were naked and they were unashamed. This is also why on the sixth day of creation, God looked at everything that he had made. He had made this world, and then he had put somebody in his image over this world that he had made, and he said, it is very good. He had put something, someone over his creation. He said, it is very good, and so God rested And God put the man and the woman, it's interesting when you think about this biblically, God put the man and the woman in the garden, in Eden, among the other dry lands. And the the imagery we see there, I don't have time to to explain it in depth, but the imagery we see there is actually temple language. God, as it were, is kind of putting his temple structure in place to to show his glory. In the the ancient world, and all over the ancient world, if you travel through the ancient world, there's still visages of these old temples, and in the old temples, okay, you can, so if you, some of y'all have gone to Athens, right? If you go to Athens, there is still the Parthenon, right? There's this ancient temple to Athena. And it used to be, it's not there anymore. Uh, it used to be there was this massive, actually, if you go to the Parthenon in Nashville, there still is this there. So just forget Athens, just go to Nashville. But if you go to the Parthenon in, Ash, in, in Nashville, if you go inside, there's this great big statue to Athena. If, if some of you all have been inside, you know what I'm talking about. And that's the way it used to be in, in Athens. There was this great big statue. There was this great image. That's the way all ancient temples were, the temple was the place where heaven and earth came together. And in the temple, there was a carved image of whatever God the temple was to, to to kind of show God's jurisdiction or whatever that God's was jurisdiction over this place, over this area. The one great exception, of course, was ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, there wasn't carved images in the temple. Why, why, you know why? Because God had made a living image. (laughs) He had created us. He says, wherever this being is, that I have created my image, one after my kind, through them, my glory would be known. My jurisdiction would be known. My glory would be spread. It's his jurisdiction, right? What did he give the man as an assignment to do and the woman as assignment to do? To to see over all the creatures of the earth, to, to, to govern, as it were, the creatures. Don't you see what's happening here? And then God said, so he placed his image in the garden, but then he says, let's go back up to 28 here, he says, be fruitful, multiply, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. You see what God's doing here? I, I, I've created this world and I want my governance, my authority, my jurisdiction to be known Over and throughout the whole world, as you, man and woman, made in my image, go and fill the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I I love this picture. So you know, is, is it where God put, you know, the man and the woman somewhere here in the Garden of Eden, and humanity was to spread out and to fill the world, and as we did, the glory. And the presence and the jurisdiction of God would be known everywhere in his whole creation. And what is the means that God gave us to bring about this multiplication and filling? And it is marriage, of course, the institution of marriage, and of course, the sign of marriage, the physical sign of the union of the man and the woman, which is sex. So, this brings me to my second point now. What does it mean to have sex? Now, you might be saying, I thought we were gonna get around to dating. Well, this is all about dating. (laughs) If you're gonna date, you gotta gotta start here. You gotta understand who you are and what were you created to do. And and if you live by the ethic of Dorian Gray, you're always gonna get it wrong. But if if you live by the ethic of God, you, you might get it right. And so remember the ethic of the Godhead. It's to give and to receive, to give honor and love and to receive that honor and love. But of course, the impulse of the modern world is to get and to take. And this is seen in no arena more clearly than the arena of sex. But just think about the way we talk about sex. Are you going to get some action? Are you going to get some tail? Are you going to get laid? He took my virginity, right? Sex in the modern world, and especially outside of marriage, but even sometimes within marriage, it's all about getting something, about getting a good deal, And the posture of God, of course, is about giving and receiving. The modern way of understanding sex and dating is about getting and taking. How how opposite, do you see how opposite this inclination, this impulse is to the ethic of God? To the ethic that God created us to be, to this great purpose that God would fill the world through us? You've heard me talk a lot about marketplace relationships. And of course, in a marketplace relationship, which is how a lot of people understand relationships. The the marketplace relationships are characterized by get. You need to get a good deal. If you come up to me after the service and say, hey, Jason, guess what? I saved 20% on my groceries yesterday. You know what I'm going to be like? I'm I'm not going to be like, how dare you participate in a marketplace relationship? No, I'll congratulate you. Because when you go buy groceries, you should be shrewd. You should go look for the two-for-one deal. You, you should, you know, you, you should be shrewd. You, you, that, that's called the marketplace. Of course, there, there's shrewdness involved in the marketplace that is good. But sex is not a marketplace relationship. Sex is not a marketplace good. It's a covenantal good. It's meant to reflect God. It's why sex is a physical union. I want you to hear this. Sex is a physical union only works when there is also a whole self-union. God created man in his own image. And when our posture toward one reflects this, one of love and honor, we reflect God in in his highest form. And actually the highest form of human relationship is marriage. And we see this in Genesis 2.24. This is amazing. Genesis 2.24, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother... This is the creation of marriage, if you will. And and this is a good word here, hold fast. Now, I I, I don't know, you know, there's a couple different translations for this. I actually like the old um, King James, cleave. You know, we don't use that word anymore. But I, I like the essence of that word. Hold fast doesn't quite capture it. The, the Hebrew there is debak. And debak, I, I think it means cleave. It, 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 um, it's related to this whole self-union. You're, when you get married to someone, you cleave unto her. You, you're totally joined unto her. It's not just a physical union, right? It's, or him. It's not just a physical union. It's, it's a whole self-union. There's a, an emotional tie. There's a physical tie. There's a spiritual tie. There's a family tie. You're creating a new family. You're, you're whole self-cleaving unto one another. So it says that the man shall leave his father and mother and, and cleave, Dabak, become one with his wife. And the sign of that, right? The, the covenantal sign of that, they shall become one flesh. Now this, the Hebrew here is basar. So this is, this is saying that the fleshy part, the, the, the flesh will come together. When the Dabak comes together, hold fast, then the flesh comes together. The sign of the whole self-union is that one flesh comes together. We see the same kind of language in the New Testament also. There's two kind of Greek words. Again, sometimes the translations don't, don't come over very clearly. There's two Greek words that I want you to see in this 1 Corinthians 6 passage. Soma and Sarks." Now, now, soma refers to the, the whole self, right? The, the whole of a person. Sarks refers to kind of the flesh part of a person, So this is what Paul is arguing here, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies, your your whole personhood, are members of Christ, right? You are a member of Christ if you're in Christ. So then shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one, and this is so interesting, one soma with her, and then, of course, he quotes what we just read in Genesis 2, and he uses the basar. He uses the fleshy part. The two shall become one flesh. What what Genesis and Paul are both arguing here, and I, I want you to get this, is that the, the Bach and the basar, the soma and the sarks, right? The whole self person and the physical part of the person are necessarily one thing. When the sarks comes together, the soma comes together. When the basar comes together, the debak comes together. They cannot and should not be ripped apart. Sex is a whole self-donation. And this is why sex outside of the covenant of marriage is damaging. It's ultimately damaging. What do we call it? What, what, what word do we use when we separate the flesh of a person, the body of a person, from their soul, from their mind, from their you know, emotions. What do we call that when, you, when, you, when, when they, the, the body of a person gets separated from the soul of a person? You know what we call that? You know what word we use for that? We, we call that death. That's called death. When, when we remove this covenantal good from the covenant, it's, it's, it's violent. It rips you apart. It's not natural. Sex is a covenantal good. And when sex is exchanged within the covenant, when there's a whole self covenant that's been made, it's a celebration. It's a wonderful thing. It brings about unity and peace. But outside of marriage, it it, it is reduced to be a marketplace good. And in a marketplace good, you know what you're always having to do? You know what you have to do with marketplace good? You always have to market. (laughs) You always have to bring it to market. That's why sex outside of marriage is exhausting. Was it good enough? Was that okay? Is Is there some other product that's gonna come along? That he or she is gonna like better. You're ripping the sarks and the soma apart. There's no peace in that. But when sex is given and received in marriage as a covenantal good, it's not about getting a good deal, it's about love, it's about honor. When the husband and wife make love, it's, it's not just physical, it is that. And it's fun and it's joyful and it's good, but it's not just amusement. It's about honoring one another, exchanging this covenantal good, reminding one another of the covenant that has been made. Unlike marketplace relationships, it's not based on the exchange, right? The, the nature of the relationship is not based on how good this exchange was. No, it, it's a free exchange within the bounds of the covenant. John Witte, he says this, he says, the bodily exposure that arouse and accompany sex can be profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing if it is the concrete sign of what is happening in the whole relationship. So it only makes sense that sexual relationships should be confined to marriage. For mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of a moment, but the fabric of a lifetime's weaving. And of course, then when the products of this come out, when you you produce children, Within the covenant, it's not shameful, it's not something you want to hide, it's wonderful, it's it's not unwanted, it's fruit of covenantal love. You know, I, I want you to hear this. <laughs> Hugh Hefner did not invent sex. God did. And his plan for it is beautiful and right and holy, but it's a covenantal good. The physical union only works within the whole self-union. And I just want to say this, this is so important for us as a worshiping church. This, this matters. We, we were made, we were created by God according to his kind, to display his glory. And I want you to say, I'm not here to condemn you. <laughs> I'm here to give you a vision. I'm here to invite you to something, something that God, I'm, I'm here to invite you to something in the name of Jesus, something that God is inviting you to by his gospel. And the truth of the matter is we've all messed this up You know, Alan Moeller has said, everyone north of puberty is perverted in some way. And that's true. And here's the deal. We aren't just sexually perverted. We're perverted in every way. (laughs) Instead of approaching one another with love and honor, what we were made to do as we reflect God, we go out trying to get what we can from one another, not trying to give good to one another. We go out with greed and deceit. We go out and exploit one another. We go out and use one another. We go out and dishonor one another and we go out and dishonor God. And even though God should, in response to that, have come to us with great judgment, God has come to us with great mercy. Even though Jesus should have come to the world to condemn the world. He actually says in John three seventeen that he didn't come to condemn us but he actually came that we may be saved, saved from our perversion through him. And even though we certainly haven't approached one another with love and honor, and we certainly didn't approach Jesus with love and honor when he came, that's exactly how Jesus has approached us. He has come to honor us and to love us that we may be saved through him. And on the cross, Jesus has demonstrated the greatest love for us of all, that he took on all of our perversion, all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our lust, all of our selfishness, all of our exploitation. Jesus took on the record of all of that. And in the greatest act of love ever, died for us, endured the judgment that we deserve, showing us the greatest act of love and honor that could ever be shown, that he took on our record of sin against a holy God. He lived the life that we should have lived but didn't, And then he died the death that we should have died so that through him, because of him, we could be saved. The son of man did not come to condemn us, but he came so that we could be saved through him. And so that through him and through Jesus, we can be restored to God, we can live. And this is the invitation now. Through Christ, you're called back up in. to this loving union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're called to know God and have fellowship with God in this beautiful way. And to reflect this in the way that we love and treat one another, to, to approach one another with love and honor. Don't you see the vision for this? And, and when you've really known this, when you've really been called and when you really experience fellowship with God, I'm just gonna tell you, when you really know fellowship with God, you, you'll never wanna do anything that would break it. You don't wanna break it. You don't, you don't want to fall out of fellowship. Because you don't want anything that would dishonor what God has called you into. And so my question to you today is, have you, do you know this? Have you known this? Have you experienced this kind of redemption, this kind of love? Have you experienced this kind of peace? Has it changed you? Has it captured you? Or are you still living the lie of Dorian Gray? doing whatever my heart says, then I'll be happy. Is that how, is that where you're living? Is that who you are? How's that working out for you? Or have you come to know the way of God where true life abides, where true shalom lives? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a vision for who we are to be, who we've been created to be, Father, I pray that we would not be so short-sighted, not so small-minded, but we would know Your goodness. We would know who we've been made to be, Lord. What this great purpose that we've been called to—to to, made in Your image, to reflect Your glory, to be after Your kind. Father, give us a heart for this and a vision for this today. Help us to actually believe the gospel today. To believe that, or even though, as I mentioned before, all of us have perverted your design in some way or the other, but you have not come to us to condemn us. You've come to us that we may be saved through Jesus. You've come to us with honor and with love. So, Father, I pray that you would lead us, even because of your kindness and love, to repentance, to belief, to faith, that we would trust you. We would look to you. Do this work in our hearts. I ask and pray in Jesus' name.